In motivating his son Corianton to repent, Alma teaches him not only about sexual purity, but about resurrection, judgment, the fallen atonement, the justice of God, and the plan of mercy. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining me again for Gospel Doctrine, your Come Follow Me podcast. If you would like to ask a question that I could read on the air and answer from the scriptures, please send me an email at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Today's lesson is Alma chapter 39 through 42, The Great Plan of Happiness. And if you've read these before, you know this is the letter of Alma to his son Corianton. And in the last uh, week, we've covered the letters that Alma sent to Helaman and Shiblon, his two other sons, and you might call them his two righteous sons, because in in this letter we have actually Alma's rebuke to his son for the sins that he's committed, and he starts off right away. So one of the major themes of this lesson is going to be the theme of chastity, but really Alma just spends just a few minutes on chastity and then uses that as an opportunity to teach actually the fact that God does care what choices we make. And chastity just happens to be one of those choices that he cares about. You know, in each of the standard works, there's an opportunity, there's almost sort of a built-in opportunity to talk about chastity. In the Old Testament, it's when David succumbs to temptation and cheats with Bathsheba. And in the New Testament, it's when Christ talks about how you've heard it said of them of olden time that you should not commit adultery. But I say, if you look at a woman to lust after her, then you have committed adultery with her already in your heart. So that was that's sort of the New Testament opportunity. Here in the Book of Mormon, it's Corianton's transgression when he follows the harlot Isabel. And uh, this is the third of the named women in the Book of Mormon, unfortunately. So this this wicked woman who drew many after her, according to Alma, uh, this was no excuse for Corianton because he had a ministry. And this is our opportunity in the Book of Mormon to talk about chastity. And the Come Follow Me manual had what I thought was a great quotation from the October 1998 General Conference talk by Elder Holland. This talk is called Personal Purity. And the part of the talk that they quote is, when Elder Holland says, clearly among his greatest concerns regarding mortality are how one gets into this world and how one gets out of it. He has set very strict limits in these matters. So the earlier on in the talk, Personal Purity by Jeffrey Holland, uh, I'm going to quote a couple of things. This is, a, this is a common quote you'll hear the brethren use when they're talking about sexual purity. Will and Ariel Durant, this is their quote. No man or woman, however brilliant or well-informed, can safely dismiss the wisdom of lessons learned in the laboratory of history. A youth boiling with hormones will wonder why he should not give full freedom to his sexual desires, but if he is unchecked by custom, morals, or laws, he may ruin his life before he understands that sex is a river of fire that must be banked and cooled by a hundred restraints if it is not to consume in chaos both the individual and the group. And uh, Elder Holland goes on, that's the end of his quote, he goes on, A more important scriptural observation is offered by the writer of Proverbs. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? Whoso committeth adultery destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. This is still Elder Holland quoting now. Why is this matter of sexual relationships so severe that fire is almost always the metaphor, with passion pictured vividly in flames. What is there in the potentially hurtful heat of this that leaves one's soul, or the whole world for that matter, destroyed if that flame is left unchecked and those passions unrestrained? So I think I'd be remiss if I didn't underline some of the many messages that have been sent to us as Latter-day Saints about personal purity, sexual morality, uh, throughout the throughout the ages and throughout the last decades of the living prophets. If I were to distill the messages that I've received throughout my lifetime on this subject, I think I would seize upon Elder Holland's idea of fire and take it one step farther. So fire 
is obviously a perfect metaphor when it's out of control. But fire is also a wonderful thing. You know, you and I, each of us, I've talked about this before, but each of us, we carry a device. You're probably listening to me on this device. We carry a device that makes careful, controlled use of fire to do wonderful things. This fire of electricity runs throughout our smartphones, it runs throughout our computers, and it, send, it can send our voice, it can send my voice to you across the world, across the country, across the state, across time, and it can provide to you all of the information that you could possibly want, more information than has been available to kings and to scholars and to scientists in any previous generation known to man. And the power of that device, I think, is a perfect metaphor for the gifts that fire brings, because you and I would no sooner take our smartphone and toss it into a fire than we would take an axe to it, right? You would know that that was a destructive act, tossing this phone into a fire. You would know you were destroying it by doing that. And nevertheless, it is the gift of fire. It is the power of fire that allows that phone to perform its vital functions. And I see in this idea of fire a perfect metaphor for the reproductive gift that God has given to men and women on this earth. And obviously, it's more than a reproductive gift. It's a gift of binding couples together through reproduction and through joy, through closeness. And you don't have to throw your iPhone in the fire to destroy it. You just have to give it a little too much electricity, and that can actually fry the innards of it. And it may look totally normal, but it will never come back and function again as it w was intended to do. In all of these things, we can you know, find a metaphor that I think is very instructive and, and can be profitable if we don't extend it beyond its boundaries. So that is, that is kind of the point of sex in the plan of salvation, and that is that it was always meant to be the divine spark that drives the plan of God, bringing his children to earth and helping them to take part in the plan and binding families together forever. And at the same time, when it escapes its desired context that God intended for it, then it can be almost universally destructive. So the next concept I think I would bring up that I've in, that is in several lessons that I've received throughout my life is that the litmus, list, litmus test we should use for when we've transgressed is not the litmus test of immoral actions, but lust itself. You know, if you were to go to a, an Alcoholics Anonymous group, you wouldn't hear them say, uh, you know what, it was, it's okay for me to be around people who drink. It's okay for me to smell the liquor, to put it up to my lips. It's okay for me to pour it. It's okay for me to have it in my house. As long as I don't drink it, I'm just fine. You would hear every single alcoholic in that group, you would hear them say, I, I, I've had to change who my friends are. I've, I have to be around people who don't drink casually, or if so, I have to be around them when they're not drinking in order to avoid doing something that I know will be harmful to me because I've, it, I've proven to myself that I'm helpless against this desire for alcohol. My addiction is that strong. Likewise, if you were to attend a group of those who might be called sex addicts, you wouldn't hear them talking about the fact that they can indulge in lust all day long as long as they don't actually commit sexual acts, immoral sexual acts, then everything is fine. You would hear them say, Lust is my addiction, and I ha that is the line that I have to draw for myself. And so not only do I have to keep myself from situations where I would commit a sexual sin, but I also have to keep myself from situations where I would find the urge to lust irresistible. I have to remove myself from such situations, and I have to limit as much as I can my opportunities and my inducements to lust, because that is the real sin, as Jesus said. Now, I could go on uh, restating the concepts that I've just talked about over and over again for the rest of the hour, but I think, uh, I, I think I've said everything there is to say, and all there is after that is just, do you believe it or don't you believe it? Are you willing to sacrifice to implement in your life, or are you not? And I think I, I should say to anyone who's struggling with urges along these lines or with uh, transgressions along these lines, the desire to repent or the desire to stop, along these lines. Let me say this, it is easier to give up lust than it is to retain lust and give up sexual sin. That is just a fact. If you want to repent, your efforts will be more profitably directed 
if you try to give up lust than if you try to retain lust and just give up the rest. Because lust is really, as Jesus said, the whole enchilada. Now we're going to talk about why, it, why you should have hope if you have this sort of transgression in your past. And nevertheless, why it's really serious to get after the repentance process. This, this letter to Corianton basically describes both of those concepts. Why you should have so much hope and also why you should not waste time in getting after your repentance. So in verse 5 of, now we're in uh, chapter 39 of Alma. Let's, let's move on to our Book of Mormon. And in, in verse 5 of chapter 39, Alma says these things, and uh, we don't know exactly what he means by these things, but we can presume he means, well, I think most people presume he means sexual sin. Know you not, my son, that these things are an abomination in the sight of the Lord, yea, most abominable, above all sins, save it be, the shedding of innocent blood or denying the Holy Ghost. Now we've learned other places in the scriptures that denying the Holy Ghost when it's done in a certain way, right? When, when uh, someone has an absolute witness of God and then denying the Holy Ghost means more than just saying, no, I didn't, I didn't feel the Spirit right then. It means acting against the interests of God and actually, as it's uh, described in the Doctrine of Covenants, re-crucifying the Lord afresh and putting him to an open shame. Uh, this is the, the path to being a son of perdition. Just under that is the sin of shedding innocent blood, murder of someone who... Uh, in, in an unjustified way, uh, killing in an unjustified way. And obviously both terrible sins, sins that you would think, yes, forgiveness for that sin will be very hard to gain. About, quote-unquote, these things, Alma says in verse 6, he says it twice, it is not easy for him to obtain forgiveness, yea, I say unto you, my son, that it is not easy for him to obtain a forgiveness. So Alma talks about how difficult it is to be forgiven of these things. So the question that remains to us to answer is, what does he mean when he talks about these things? Now, the, the assumption that many teachers of this particular passage have made is that these things is simply any sexual sin. So sexual sins as a category are just under murder and denying the Holy Ghost in seriousness. And it's just as difficult to obtain a forgiveness. And this might be controversial, but I, I am offering you my opinion. That's, th- that is not, that reading is not how I read this passage. So for me, when he says these things, uh, at, at the first line of verse 5, Know ye not, my son, that these things are an abomination. When he says these things, he's talking to Corianton in a specific context. And to understand this context, we're going to actually go back to the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 20, God gives to Moses the Ten Commandments. In verse 7, he gives him the commandment, Thou shalt not carry, or I'm I'm sorry, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for God will not hold him uh, guiltless who who taketh his name in vain. And I keep saying carry because uh, I'm giving away the, the answer here. If you go back to the Hebrew, the Hebrew word is nasa, or the, the infinitive is nasa, to take or to carry, but to take in the sense of to take upon yourself a burden. So a lot of times we think that saying the words, oh my God, in a way that you're not actually addressing God, is what this means. This, this one of the Ten Commandments, to say those words is actually so serious that God will not hold him guiltless. He's actually saying about this act, the the taking of the name of God in vain, he's saying the same thing that Alma is in chapter 39. He's saying, it is not easy, whosoever taketh the name of God in vain, it is not easy for him to obtain a forgiveness, just as Alma is saying about sexual sin. Now, can it be true that of all the sins that are in the Ten Commandments, this is, by the way, this is the one about which God says, that it's not, he, he will not hold him guiltless. He will not forgive somebody who takes his name in vain. Can it be said that it's true that that is the worst of the, ten, breaking that commandment is the worst sin of breaking any of them? Remember, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not steal. These are all parts of the Ten Commandments. And God doesn't say about any of those that he will not hold, he will not hold him guiltless who breaketh this commandment, only about taking his name in vain. So is there something missing here? And uh, 
the, the meaning of that word nasa, to carry, to take, is actually the missing piece, right? So when you carry the name of God, when you take it upon yourself as a burden, that means you are someone who's teaching the word of God. You have a ministry. So Moses would have been someone who is carrying the name of God. When he went to talk to any of the children of Israel, he would have been there in his role as someone carrying the name of God. And that's the position that Corianton found himself in among the Zoramites. He was there carrying the name of God. And what Alma says, if we skip forward to verse 11, he says, Behold, O my son, now we're in the middle of verse 11 of Alma chapter 39. He said, Behold, O my son, how great iniquity ye brought upon the Zoramites, for when they saw your conduct, they would not believe in my words. Now here we get to the point, Alma is saying, not only did you commit this sexual sin, but you did it while you were engaged in the ministry of God, while, while you had taken upon yourself the burden of carrying his name to those who did not know it. And because you did that, you defined the name of God as a name that was mixed up in your iniquity. Now this is a very common Israelite, Hebrew, Old Testament idea that prophets, and this is, by the way, it's a true idea, that prophets, they take upon themselves the sins of the people if they do not publish the words that God has given them. God has called prophets throughout every age, throughout every dispensation, to take upon themselves the sin, answering the sins of the people upon their own heads if they did not faithfully fulfill their own ministry. And Alma is saying to Corianton, it's no different for us. We have, the sins of the people will come upon us. We have this duty and this obligation to teach the, the gospel to everyone with whom we come in contact as long as we have this ministry, as long as we are carrying the name of God or taking the name of God upon us. And we cannot do that in vain. If so, then the sins of the people will be answered on our heads. And if we do it faithfully, then we can shake our garments free of their blood. We can wash the, their blood from our garments. You hear all of these metaphors used throughout the scriptures. So in my personal opinion, and this is not to diminish the importance or the se- severity of sexual sin, but in my personal opinion, what Alma is saying when he says these things, what he means is, son, when you have taken upon yourself the name of God and then you go after a harlot, you have murdered some of, spiritually some of God's children. Look at what happened with the Zoramites. They would not accept the truth. Alma has used this metaphor before. When he spoke in uh, Alma chapter 36, he spoke to Helaman in verse 14. He said, I had murdered many of his children, or rather led them away unto destruction. So that is Alma likening the shedding of innocent blood to carrying the name of God in vain. And here in chapter 39, he's making a similar tie. He's saying, these things are the most serious sins you can commit short of murder. And to me, that would fit very much in line with Alma's philosophy about the relative seriousness of murder and of leading children of God astray from the Word of God. And Alma the Younger always had sort of a position of trust because he was the son of the prophet, and he used that position to draw people away. And therefore, even at the time, he was carrying the name of God in vain. So that is my personal belief about the meaning of that commandment, which is that when we carry the name of God, we have a stronger duty and a stronger obligation to conduct ourselves in a way that people can believe in God. We make it possible or we make it impossible for them to believe. And to continue that line of thought, think about uh, terrorists, for example, violent extremists who murder in the name of religion. There are many atheists right now, the world over, but especially in the West, who say that, look at all the evil that has been done in the name of God, therefore why would I want to believe in God? It really does have an effect when, even if you're not a minister, even if you just say, I'm doing this in the name of God, I am killing you, I'm conquering your country, I am uh, perpetrating this violence, these are acts done in the name of God, and therefore the person doing them is carrying the name of God. And And because they are working evil, as they say they are carrying the name of God, then they are carrying the name of God in vain. They are making it more difficult for others to believe. 
So that should give you hope. If you have ever had in your past a sexual transgression, you can understand it's not the same thing. Please understand. It's not the same thing as repenting of murder. Now, that is not to say you're off the hook, and Alma doesn't make any such inference in, in anything that he says to Corianton. In fact, Corianton is laboring under a number of false beliefs. Now, the first of them is that it wasn't that big of a deal to go after the harlot Isabel, that it was something that he could uh, engage in and then come back and be on his ministry, but other people had seen his conduct and they wouldn't believe. But he was still there as a missionary. What a terrible thing that was, but he obviously thought that it was permissible. So this was one of Corianton's false beliefs. But it turns out that Corianton has a number of false beliefs. And I suspect, so if we, that kind of takes us through chapter uh, 39. If we move into chapter 40, this is a chapter of pure revealed doctrine. And what that means is here is a prophet telling us, I guess what, I have received something from heaven, and I'm about to tell you exactly what heaven told me. These are actually, these snippets of doctrine are actually rare anywhere in Scripture. Normally, Scripture talks to us about what a prophet experienced, what the people of God experienced, what they taught, the concepts that they believe in. But, and when I say rare, I don't mean that uh, the Scriptures don't contain this kind of thing. I guess what I mean is it's very precious. They're few and far between. And he's teaching us here pure revealed doctrine about the resurrection of the dead. He's saying that I have prayed for many days and nights I've prayed and fasted to know what happens to men and women between the time they die and the time they're resurrected. And I have received an answer from heaven. So, son, here is the answer. So that's kind of the main idea of chapter 40. And the, I guess the concepts that Alma teaches Corianton, he's setting Corianton up to teach him, teach him about the necessity of repenting. Alma feels so strongly the need for his son to repent that he composes this beautiful and eloquent letter that the whole letter is designed to, the the whole intent of the letter is to change someone's heart from being unwilling to repent into willingness to repent. And the way it does that is through teaching correct doctrine. So here in chapter 40, some of the concepts involved are, number one, resurrection means that the body and the soul will be reunited. There are people, Alma says, who have said that uh, because we are sort of sorted as we die, we, we go into a state of happiness or a state of misery awaiting our final judgment. That sorting is the resurrection. And Alma says, yeah, it, it's a type of resurrection, but it absolutely is not what the scriptures are talking about. The scriptures, when they mention resurrection, they're talking about the reuniting of the body and the soul, or what we would call the body and the spirit. And in that question or in that concern, you can see the common conflation that occurs in the Book of Mormon. In the Book of Mormon, resurrection and judgment are almost synonymous among the prophets of the Book of Mormon, because every time they mention the resurrection, they talk about how men will be reunited with their their the souls of men will be reunited with their bodies, and then they will be brought before the bar of God to be judged of their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. These two events are almost simultaneous throughout the Book of Mormon. And so to hear Alma say, this sorting is a type of resurrection, is further support of that idea that resurrection and judgment go together, especially in the, in the minds of the prophets of the Book of Mormon. So resurrection is the reuniting of body and soul, physical act. Christ will be the first one resurrected, but other righteous souls will follow. And likely, not for sure, but and, and at this time he didn't know exactly the, the sequence of events. We know some of those events from the New Testament. Uh, but he says, likely, but not for sure, the, the righteous will be resurrected before the wicked. And then here's what I asked heaven, Corianton. Here's what I, Alma, asked heaven to know, and here's what I do know, that between death and resurrection, our souls go to that God who gave us life, and then he gives us the opportunity to live in a state of paradise and happiness if we've chosen that, and in a state of wickedness if we've chosen that, if we haven't chosen to take advantage of his mercy. Now, that pure doctrine in chapter 40 allows Alma to, move, to change gears in chapter 41 and now begin to talk about repentance. So this is the chapter where I get the impression 
that Corianton has fallen prey to the doctrine of the Nihors. The Nihors is an apostate religion that has widespread acceptance among both Nephites and Lamanites, and probably had a foothold, a strong foothold, among the Zoramites as well. So we know that Zoramites, they worshipped the religion of the Ramiumptum, for lack of a better word. So they believed that certain of them were chosen and certain of them were not. But I imagine there were those, uh, let me put it this way, these two apostasies seem to go hand in hand, that God will save everyone. That's That's the fallacy or that's the heresy of Nehor, that choice is not required for salvation. And it was slightly modified among the Zoramites that choice, if you're one of the chosen, is not required for salvation. God has pre-selected us, predestined us to be saved, and therefore we don't have to do anything. And it does seem that Corianton has some of these beliefs in his heart because what he believes is his belief in the doctrine of restoration. And I don't know what the ancient Nephite word for restoration was, but Alma uses it over and over again. So it must have been important to Corianton. And Corianton has learned about restoration his whole life. This idea that what we do during life will come back to us. Somehow, Corianton got it in his head that he would be restored from a state of wickedness into a state of happiness. Now, that is Nehor doctrine. That is also Zoramite doctrine if you're one of the chosen. If you're one of the people that gets to go and worship in their synagogue and stand on the Ramiumptum and say, God, we thank, you, we thank thee that we're not like our brethren then that is their doctrine that you don't have to do anything and you get chosen for salvation. It's coming automatically to you. And Corianton, believing that he can act however he wants, commit sin however he wants, show whatever kind of example he wants, and then be brought forth, restored from that into a state of salvation, that is a Nehor doctrine. That is the heresy of Nehor. That's kind of why I think that he was believing that. So Alma, in order to motivate Corianton to change, he had to first impress upon his mind the seriousness of what he had done, and then teach him correct doctrine, and now go back even deeper and say, not only do you have the wrong idea about restoration and resurrection, but I'm going to tell you about the very ideas of justice and the, the whole plan of salvation of God. And only in understanding this great plan can you act correctly? Can you be motivated to make the right choices and the sacrifices required to bring you to salvation? And that's what chapter 41 and 42 are. Now, I think that, that this is one of the most complete summaries of the plan of salvation that you'll find anywhere. If he had talked about forgiveness of uh, man for each other, men and women for one another, and if he talked about taking care of the poor, really those would be the only two things left, in my opinion, and he would have covered the entire gospel. He talked about everything else. He talks about the, the fall, the atonement, the nature of God, the, the plan of the role of Christ in the plan of salvation, and the importance of justice and mercy. These are two densely packed chapters, and I'm not going to be able to do them justice. But I want to talk about, so I'm going to pick exactly what I want to talk about, and I'll leave it unto you to go read the rest. Please don't miss reading these chapters on your own. They're among the most precious chapters in the Book of Mormon. So here in Alma chapter 41, Alma begins giving his antidote to the doctrine of the Nehors, which is all will be saved, by saying that the restoration of God does not mean that wickedness will restore you to happiness. This uh, famous scripture mastery verse in verse 10, do not suppose because it has been spoken concerning restoration that ye shall be restored from sin to happiness. Behold, I say unto you, wickedness never was happiness. So obviously Corianton had that belief that wickedness somehow and happiness could coexist. But happiness is the plan of God. It is a plan not to be happy in spite of wickedness, but to be happy after wickedness has been expunged, to be happy by taking wickedness out of us. And we don't do that. God does that. We just have to let him. So that takes us to verse 10. And now what I want to say about Alma chapter 41, it's not a long chapter, is that verses 12 through 15 are an extended poem. If you didn't have a chance to watch the YouTube video of our special episode this week, uh, now I'm going to make another invitation for you to do that. Especially, I didn't find the exact timestamps, but later on in the video, probably about halfway through, um, and you can see in the slides, you can see what scripture that Mike Madsen, our presenter, is dealing with. 
if you don't have time to watch the whole hour-long video, then I encourage you to skip to the portion where he talks about this particular scripture, Alma chapter 41. It is one of the most beautiful and complicated chiasmuses. I don't. I actually don't know the plural. It is one of the most beautiful and complicated chiasmic poems in the entire Book of Mormon. And that's because it has a very unique structure. I'm going to talk about it a little bit, but I, if you want to see this idea represented in a visual way, again, I recommend you go to watch that special episode video on YouTube. And if you go to YouTube and just search for Gospel Doctrine and Chiasmus, then you should be able to find it. So this poem begins by Alma talking about the meaning of the word restoration. He says, he asks the question, is the meaning of the word restoration to take something out of its natural state and put it in a state opposite its nature? Now, just to show you how chiasmus works, now if we skip to the end, we can find a match to that question. That which you do send out shall return to you again. In other words, the answer to the question is no. So the beginning of the poem is Alma asking a question. Does restoration restore you from sin to happiness? The end of the poem is Alma saying, that which you send out returns to you again, and it's restored to you. The word restoration more fully condemneth the sinner and justifieth him not at all. So what is in the middle of this poem to convince Corianton of that truth? In verse 13, Alma says, my son, this is not the case. In other words, it's not the case you're going to be placed in an unnatural state. The meaning of the word restoration is to bring back evil for evil, carnal for carnal, devilish for devilish. And now listen carefully to this. Good for that which is good. Righteous for that which is righteous. Just for that which is just. Merciful for that which is merciful. He names each of these good uh, attributes or good intentions or good actions. He names them each twice. And this is what makes this chiasmus unique, because on the one hand, he's saying that good will be restored to you or given to you. you. That's what you will receive for that which is good. In other words, you will receive good if you give good. And he does that with all four of these attributes. And then in verse 14, he says, Therefore, my son, see that you are merciful unto your brethren. And now he's talking about what Corianton can give. Deal justly, judge righteously, do good continually. These are, in other words, he uh, in verse 13, he mentioned each of these attributes twice. Once as something that he would, that Corianton would give, and the, other, and the second time as something that he would receive. Now he says them all in a row. Rather than saying each of the four attributes twice, he says each attribute individually is something that Corianton would give. And now he says, yea, if you do all these things, then shall ye receive your reward. Yea, ye shall have mercy restored unto you again. Ye shall have justice restored unto you again. Ye shall have a righteous judgment restored unto you again. And ye shall have good rewarded unto you again. This time he says them in reverse order, as you would expect from a chiasmus. So what Alma does, and this is obviously a a poem that Alma took a great deal of time to write, but the reason that the ancient prophets wrote chiastically was so because they lived in an oral tradition, and they wanted their hearers to remember the lessons, and this would have been ingrained in Alma from an early age. It's, the, it's simply the scriptural and even the Hebraic way of teaching concepts, because they stay with you. And the central point of, of this chiasmus is, then shall ye receive your reward. So talking about receiving your reward, and then he, he illustrates, you give this and you get this, and it, and it all matches. Each, each of those giving and receiving in verse 14 has their match in verse 13. They're doubled up on the way in, and then they're separated singly on the way out. If you want to see, again, I, I'm not doing it justice. This concept was brought home to me and taught to me by Mike Madsen. And if you want to see it represented visually, that's really the best way to understand it. Go find that video on YouTube. But this is one of the most beautiful passages and beautiful poems, most complicated poems, and most effective poems in all the Book of Mormon. Because as we learn in later chapters, this letter to Corianton did the trick. Corianton did, in fact, repent. He ended up an effective missionary, and he was forgiven of his sins. And as uh, as Mormon describes Corianton later, 
He first describes the righteousness of Moroni. Remember, Captain Moroni is the kind of man that if everyone had been like him, the powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Then what does he say about the sons of Alma? He says, behold, the sons of Alma were not one whit behind Moroni in righteousness. So Corianton becomes the kind of person who can be described in the same sentence as Captain Moroni. After he was the kind of person who would carry the name of God in vain and take many of the Zoramites with him into destruction and follow after the harlot Isabel, right? He was a very vile sinner, just like Alma, just like Zeezrom, just like Alma the Elder, just like so many people in the Book of Mormon. And here is Alma the Younger bringing him to repentance. This is the cycle of the Book of Mormon right here, unfolding before our eyes. We'll see it happen to Corianton. And that takes us to chapter 42. Now, chapter 42 is another of these almost pure doctrine chapters. He, Alma doesn't say specifically how much of this he heard from an angel, but this is doctrine of the plan of salvation, and it outlines clearly what happened in times when Alma could not have witnessed. So he knows things about the, the way the fall unfolded, the way God treated Adam and Eve, the, the angels that were there. Was this revealed directly to Alma through intercession of the Holy Ghost and through God himself, or did he learn it from the scriptures? We don't learn that here. But Alma does know more than you and I would know without the Book of Mormon, without his writings. Somewhere he got extra doctrine that that you and I don't have access to, or that we wouldn't have had access to had he not given it to us. And we don't know exactly where that's from. Some Some of it doubtless came from uh, his his own inspiration and revelation, and some of it came from the scriptures, and we don't get to know exactly where that, uh, w- what proportion was one and what proportion was the other. Nevertheless, this is like Second Nephi chapter two, in the list of chapters that are invaluable to us in understanding the fall of Adam and Eve. And one of the things that I really love about Alma chapter forty-two is that there is this wonderful correlation between the fall of Adam and Eve. The, the atonement, right, they are, they're parallel in a, in a certain way, in the same way that spiritual and temporal death are parallel, in the same way that resurrection and exaltation as rewards are parallel, in the same way that the bread and the water of the sacrament are parallel. And, this, and Alma, what Alma teaches in this chapter is that justice and mercy are parallel in that same way. And I'm going to tie all these together for you. We're going to discuss, and it doesn't, it's not as complicated as I've made it sound. We're going to discuss this chapter 42, and I think by the time I'm done, it'll all make sense. So the first thing I want to say, and before I start talking about specific verses, is I've taught in the past that the fall of Adam, as we understand, and mostly from this chapter, the fall of Adam is, the fall of Adam and Eve, is a proxy sacrifice of the stature of the atonement, almost. It, it is, to put it another way, second only to the atonement in its impact upon the salvation of the children of men. So what does that mean? Adam and Eve, when they took upon themselves to transgress the commandment of God, eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they became fallen. They became a lost and fallen people, as Alma describes in, in chapter 42. And because they did that, they also caused the entire earth to change its nature. Any offspring born to Adam and Eve, therefore, were born into a lost and fallen world. They became lost and fallen man as well. In that way, what Adam and Eve did was a proxy sacrifice. They lived in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. They had frequent visits from God, personal visits where he would teach them things, and he would even promise to come back and teach them more, and they were waiting for this, and it was during the period when they were waiting for this additional instruction that they transgressed and fell. Now, it requires a lot of pondering, and and some of the answers are not 100% clear as to how much of that was intentional. Did Adam and Eve know, we cannot reproduce We cannot have children, we cannot have posterity here in the garden, and therefore we're going to fall in order to keep the commandment of God to to multiply and replenish the earth, we have to break the other commandment to not eat of this fruit. How much of that did they know? How much of it was on purpose? We, We have to guess a little bit there. But they knew some of it. They knew that they couldn't fulfill all of their potential without partaking of this fruit. And especially Eve knew that. 
Now, the first verse I'm going to bring to your attention in Alma chapter 42 is verse 7. Alma uh, talks about how it was appointed to man to die. He, he talks about basically the things I've already said, that when Adam and Eve, they chose to fall, they chose the transgression of eating the fruit, then they became fallen man. They, the world became a lost and fallen world. And in verse 7, Alma says, And now you see by this that our first parents were cut off both temporally and spiritually from the presence of the Lord. And thus we see they became subjects to follow after their own will. Now, another way of saying subjects to follow after their own will is to say that they had agency. Lehi expressed it by saying they were agents unto themselves, to act and not to be acted upon. This made men and women unique in the creations of God in that we can choose for ourselves to follow the plan of God. And as necessity of that choice, we can also choose to transgress the commandments of God. So basically what Adam and Eve gained for their posterity, for anyone that would follow them, was the ability to disobey. And it is the ability to disobey that makes us free agents. It, it gives us the power to actually choose. When we don't have the ability to disobey, the choice to obey is sort of meaningless. The problem is, as Alma expresses in, in verse 9, therefore, as the soul could never die, and the fall had brought upon all mankind a spiritual death, as well as t- a temporal, that is, they were cut off from the presence of the Lord, it was expedient that mankind should be reclaimed from this spiritual death. Therefore, as they had become carnal, sensual, and devilish by nature, this probationary state became a state for them to prepare. It became a preparatory state. Emma goes on to say in verse 14, Thus we see that all mankind were fallen, and they were in the grasp of justice, yea, the justice of God, which consigned them forever to be cut off from his presence. So that is what the fall is. Because mankind now has the power to choose to disobey God, they are going to, it is a foregone conclusion, that they are going to exercise that power to some extent. They are not going to be perfect in resisting all of the temptations, and therefore they are cut off. They cannot return to live with God. They are in the grasp of his justice. And what Alma does in this verse, in in verse 14, is he equates mankind being in the grasp of God's justice and being fallen. I want this to sink in a little bit because we often clearly equate having mercy have its hold over us. We equate that with the atonement of Jesus Christ. But what we don't often do is equate having justice have its sway over us with the fall of Adam and Eve. So let me back up a little bit and repeat something I've said. The fall is a proxy sacrifice like unto the atonement, where Adam and Eve changed the nature of reality, changed the nature of mortality, so that anyone entering it lived a different sort of life than they had before. And Adam and Eve were willing to take upon themselves this choice for all of mankind that would follow, in in much the same way that Christ took upon himself the choice to suffer for the sins of all mankind, and by so doing, changed the very nature of mortality for everyone who would follow, and in his case, retroactively for everyone who had ever lived before him. One of these sacrifices caused mankind to be held in the grasp of justice, and the other sacrifice extended to mankind the arm of the mercy of God. One of these gifts, the gift of justice, comes upon us without any need for us to choose it. It comes upon us as a free gift, much like the resurrection of the dead, much like, which is represented, by the way, by the bread in the sacrament. It is represented by the body of Christ dying and returning to life. The mercy that we receive through the atonement is represented through the blood of Christ, which is shed for us. And that, the gift The reward that is associated with mercy is exaltation. So much as we receive the fall of Adam, fall under the grasp of justice, find ourselves in a fallen world, are subject to temporal death, we receive the free gift of resurrection. In the same way, we choose spiritual death, we choose to transgress, we choose to be separated from the presence of God, and Jesus Christ has performed the atonement, which extends mercy to us, which is a gift that we must choose, much like we chose to separate ourselves from God, we must must choose the gift of mercy. And if we will, 
then we have the reward of salvation and exaltation, which is a gift that is made available to all, but not compulsory. Now, as support for this idea, I'm going to read verse 21 of Alma chapter 42. If there was no law given, if men sinned, what could justice do, or mercy either? For they would have no claim upon the creature. And what he's, what Alma is saying here is, look, if the fall had not happened and there was no law, there was no transgression, what could justice do? Because it had no claim. All of, so I wanted to draw all those parallels for you so that you'll understand the, the fall of Adam and the atonement. They are not only proxy sacrifices, but they're important symbols that have been represented throughout the plan of salvation because they represent two different types of salvation, one temporal and the other spiritual. One is represented by the bread in, this, in the sacrament. The other is represented by the water. One of them comes as a free gift, and the other comes as a result of our choice through the power of Christ. And the point of teaching all of this, the point that Alma is trying to make to Corianton that I'm trying to make to you, is that we often think that justice is a bad thing. We often think, if only I could get free of justice and then have mercy, just only mercy, have its power on me, then I would be okay. Then I can be regathered into the arms of God one day and be saved. And what Alma is saying is, no, if you want that, then you don't have an accurate understanding of justice. Without justice, you're lost. And he then draws this, in verses 15 through 17, he draws this amazing dependency chart. He says, look, punishment depends on repentance to exist. If, if there's no uh, repentance, there could be no punishment. If, there's, if repentance depends on sin to exist, you can't repent if you could never sin. Sin depends on law to exist. And law depends on there be a, being a punishment enacted. And so there's this circular dependence there that where none of these things can exist without the other. And then in a related way, mercy depends on the atonement. And the atonement enables repentance to exist. So all of these things exist because of the atonement. And because of the atonement, and because of the resurrection and the judgment that it brings about, we can repent. We do have a law. We have sin. We have punishment. But all of these things are integral to the fact that we have mercy extended to us. So, Corianton, you shouldn't want to be free of God's mercy. In fact, in verse 22, there is a law given, a punishment affixed, a repentance granted, which repentance mercy claimeth. Otherwise, justice claimeth the creature and executeth the law, and the law inflicteth the punishment. If not so, the works of justice would be destroyed, and God would cease to be God. In other words, God depends on justice for his very nature. And therefore, it's, it's a gift. It's not something that we should seek to flee away from. It's part of this formula that I, Alma, have just outlined for you, Corianton. And a better word for a formula is a plan. It's part of the plan for you to escape this punishment. Otherwise, you are one of the children of Adam and Eve. You have no escape for the punishment that you have earned because you are in the grasp of justice. And therefore, if you want to be free of this punishment, you have to embrace justice and you have to embrace mercy. You have to embrace both. He gets more explicit about this in verse 30 when he says, O my son, I desire that ye should deny the justice of God no more. Do not endeavor to excuse yourself in the least point because of your sins by denying the justice of God, but do you let the justice of God and his mercy and his long-suffering have full sway in your heart, and let it bring you down to the dust in humility. So that is the point, is that if we deny the justice of God, if we try to escape in our minds this idea that God will execute justice upon us someday, then we're missing out on an opportunity to let it bring us down into humility. Humility is the real driving force of conversion and change and repentance. And understanding justice, letting it have full sway in your heart, if that brings humility to you, then that's the only way you can actually change. It's understanding the justice of God, understanding his mercy, understanding how the fall and the atonement go hand in hand, and how they are parallel sacrifices designed to bring us to God. And how one of them brings justice upon us, the other brings mercy upon us. It's only through understanding all of these things that we can be properly motivated to humble ourselves to the dust. It's not that we get to excuse some of our sins that aren't a big deal and hope that God will take the big ones off of our plate. We actually, in, the, in verse 30, he says, we don't get to excuse ourselves in the least point because of our sins. 
Every one of our sins is something we have to repent for, and Jesus Christ has to pay for. And therefore, we don't get to be partially humble. We have to let it bring us down to the dust in humility. Now, when I say that, I don't want you to think that I'm saying I've got this figured out. I am working on this every day. Nevertheless, I can see clearly that is what the scriptures are teaching me that I have to do. And so I don't want to I don't want to sugarcoat it for you. It's difficult and it's worth it. So the point that Alma's making to someone who has made a sexual transgression is you have room to repent. The the atonement exists for you. And if you haven't done something like t- carry the name of God in vain, then number one, you have the arm of mercy extended because of the atonement. But number two, don't forget, you are currently within the grasp of justice, and there is a punishment affixed. Now, that's true for everyone. It's true for every sin. And obviously, there are gradations of sin. The punishments for some sins are greater than the punishments for others. But none of us should excuse ourselves in the least point. So if you have one of these sins on your conscience, the gift of repentance is extended to you. You have to choose it. It is open to you, and if you don't choose it, then shall you receive your reward. As Alma expresses to Corianton at the end of chapter 42. I'm going to conclude by reading one of the verses that I think sums up Alma's message beautifully. And this is Alma chapter 42, verse 27. Therefore, O my son, whosoever will come, may come, and partake of the waters of life freely. And whosoever will not come, the same is not compelled to come. But in the last day, it shall be restored unto him according to his deeds. So let's remember that we can partake of the waters of life freely. The water of the sacrament, this healing mercy that is extended to us as a result of the atonement. The reward of which is the kind of life that God lives. Life with him forever. And let's be grateful not only for the mercy of God, but for the justice of God. And let's allow thoughts of his justice and his mercy bring us to the dust in humility. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.